0: listening to The Dealmaker's Edge with A.Y. Strauss, diving deep into stories behind commercial real estate leaders. Eric, thank you so much for joining. It's great to have you on. You bring an awesome energy. Would you share with us that that first initial kickoff, how you got going?
1: Yes. Yeah, so when I graduated from college, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an idea guy and I had this idea that international real estate was like the way I wanted to go. And I got my first job in Bangkok, Thailand. And my the job was not in real estate, it was in auto part manufacturing. But the goal was to figure out how do I get into real estate in Asia and kind of live this James Bond life of international <laughs> business. I got really sick. I was there for about six months and had to come back home. think that was a huge growth experience for me. But part of that understanding was real estate's a local business. You've got to really know the location. You've got to speak the language. It's helpful to speak the language, which I don't speak Thai. And you've got to use the gifts that you've been given, right? I was like, I need to be in a situation where I can truly benefit from the relationships that I've made as a, as a young adult and as a, as a kid. So uh, I moved back to Houston. One of the guys, who I wrote, and when I was in college, I had an internship at CB Richard Ellis in LA. And a guy there named Jeff Pion, who's a very uh, prominent, Uh, office leasing tenant rep broker, uh, was my boss while I was there. And he connected me with a guy who's now passed away named Mike Hill, who was an industrial real estate broker. And Mike was very generous to me, met with me, had a resume. I was doing my best to get a job. And he said, look, Eric, I'm not hiring anyone. This is 2008. I'll write you a letter of recommendation. And I'll give you my entire contact list. So whoever you want to talk to, just email them. I did that because the thing, I didn't study real estate. I didn't know anything about real estate. I'm kind of a self-taught guy. I emailed and met with over a hundred people on the list. Mm. And I asked everyone, Hey, you know, 22 years old, what would you do if you were in my shoes? Do you have a job? And I learned a lot about trying to see where I wanted to end up. And, you know, I always wanted to be on the ownership side. My grandmothers, both my grandmothers, my mom were in real estate, like with much smaller stuff than what we do today. But you know, this idea of having rental income, you know, having someone else pay on your mortgage for you always kind of resonated with me. And so in meeting with everyone, they all said, well, if you want to be on the ownership side, you need to learn finance. And so I started the process or pivoted the process to be an analyst at a mortgage banking firm. I worked there. I got a couple of internships and my first job uh, in October, 2008, mm-hmm. for Capmark Financial, I guess it was called. And uh, Capmark went bankrupt in june 2009 and so i ended up getting laid off at the same time my dad who would worked for the same company for 20 years got laid off the summer of 2008 and it was like what do i do like where do i go i actually remember going to my boss like on the last day saying hey i think i'm gonna go and start my own company i remember him telling me eric it was it's such a bad idea you really shouldn't do that Well, i i continued to to apply for jobs and to uh, try to get a job. But at the same time, you know, starting on my own, trying to figure out ways to buy real estate.
0: What was Armageddon at the time? What a great time to get in. If you can make it work in those times.
1: Yeah. I mean, the first so part of having, I think, a successful career is starting off with a win, right? So the first deal I ever bought was, was a win. It was in Baytown, Texas. I bought it for seven thousand dollars a unit for 158 units from wells fargo uh it was i remember i had to five hundred thousand dollars of equity so i got a loan from my grandparents for my co-investment for a hundred thousand and then i had to raise four hundred thousand uh we distributed all five hundred thousand i distributed all five hundred thousand back the first year which is the best cash on cash return i've ever come across hundred percent without mm-hmm. a refinance or anything like that not Just, bad we've uh invested hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of equity and it's all through high net worth investors who've referred us to other high net worth investors i mean yeah. it's it's really been truly truly organic which is which is awesome you know referral is the best introduction you could ever get
0: you've raised over 200 million dollars of equity at this point
1: definitely i think higher now we're raising 60 million dollars for two deals to close in december so We've already in one week, we got forty million dollars.
0: That's great. Tell us also about the investor base. I mean we we talked a little bit about the that high net worth investor base community and sort of the lure of going more in towards institutional capital. You know as you get bigger and bigger, managing those investors, even with great returns, it's still a lot of work. Have you been thinking more and more about trying to trend institutional, maybe doing some kind of a blend depending on the deal flow?
1: we We like the high net worth investor base because I feel like it it solves an, an unmet need. A lot of, you know, what we do today is mainly institutional quality acquisition, like class A acquisitions or development in really well-located locations, you know, kind of renting to a higher-end demographic. The high net worth investor does not get that exposure. If you're, you know, a high net worth person looking to invest in multifamily, you may have a friend who does multifamily. Most likely they do value add or you go to a financial advisor and the financial advisor puts you into a Carlisle fund or Blackstone fund or KKR fund or whatever. And then those groups come and find groups like ours to to kind of uh, buy or build apartment communities. What we provide investors is actually a way to kind of get institutional quality real estate with institutional quality operation direct. So you avoid all the layers of going through a KKR, going through a Morgan Stanley, uh, and you get it direct. It's part of how we've been able to acquire kind of these well-located projects is because we're not having to kind of inflate IRRs to compensate middlemen, if that makes sense, right? Oh,
0: well That's said. Correct. It's a direct investment. Maybe we'd briefly touch on fundamentals. I mean, obviously, I know you focus on those high quality, institutional quality assets today, but obviously the market's insane um, as far as cap rates and competition, especially in your markets today. I know you continue to find assets to buy. How are you looking at the fundamentals? Are you just, you're looking at the rent growth, you're looking at the demographics, but somebody shows you a deal in the first five, 10 minutes, what are you initially thinking about?
1: So the first thing we look for is the location. Right. So where where who's our resident? Where do they work? What what's going on in that area in terms of you know corporate expansions or obviously supply of new multifamily? How does it compete with uh, the existing stock or of multifamily that's there. Are we going to be the highest price, the lowest price? You know, where 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 are we going to sit? Replacement cost is a story. I mean, obviously that doesn't necessarily make you any money, but it is a good indicator usually. You know, we we use a lot of data analytics. We identify where our renter base lives, which our renters you know twenty four to thirty five, making somewhere between 80000 dollars a year, paying. 15 to 20% of their income and rent and college educated, upperly really mobile. As we look at Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, Atlanta, you know, we know exactly the locations that we want to be in and we know the supply-demand dynamics in each of those locations and really know the properties in those locations that we want to own. It's almost working backwards, you know, in terms of which deals hit the market uh, or trying to find off market, but a lot of the stuff that we end up buying you know, has to be marketed because it's all through institutional sellers.
0: Well said. Not every deal is a home run. Uh, You've built a great career. You're in a great asset class. You're in a great market. But tell us about some of the struggles you've had. It always looks very glamorous, people buying all these assets. But day to day, there's a lot of heartache, you know, to make it happen. And maybe you could share a story or two of some things that didn't go as well.
1: When I started 2009, I told everyone, this is what I'm going to do. And then I proceeded to not buy anything for a year. You underwrite everything, you pour everything. You know, when you sell a business, you start a business that sells ice cream every day, someone's hopefully going to come in and buy your ice cream. But when you're making investments, you don't want to make mistakes. And it took me a year to find my first deal. And I would say that's one of the, the hardest things, you know, emotionally, because it really humbles you. Kind of two thirds of the way through, I introduced a group that I knew in Houston to an equity provider. And they said, look, if they invest, we'll pay you 1%. And it was a $6 million investment. And so I was relying on this $60,000 to kind of help me with the struggle, like to keep moving on and keep keep focusing on that. And when it got to closing, there was a discrepancy between them and the equity group on who would pay the $60,000. And the equity group said, we're not going to pay it. You know, the the sponsor who told you that should pay it. Basically, it turned out they gave me 2000 bucks. It was really tough. My mom uh, said, Eric, you know, I think, I think you've given this a good shot, and I think you should, you know, do something else. And that, to me, was really hard. Just sticking with it. So everything else I've done since then is kind of fixable. Yeah, that's a great story. <laughs> kind of
0: yeah, anybody who's run a business, owned a company, tried to build anything, they go through some real lows that no one sees, but only they know. And I think what's really important is it's really imbued in you a great sense of humility as you been more and more successful, and your portfolio is growing, your investors are happier, the market's obviously doing fantastic, but that humility, it seems to resonate.
1: At the end of the day, I think there's a lot of groups that think of their customer base as their investors, which to me is totally wrong. Your customer is your resident. And if you do a good job for your resident, you do a good job for your team members, your investors will be very happy. We spend a lot of time promoting community, both on the properties, but also within our company. You know, We're having a family picnic uh, in a couple of weeks where you know, we have over hundred people coming we're really trying to build a company that can scale. You know, it, it does tie back a little bit to the investors because I don't have institutional investors who are telling me what to do. I have people who trust me who are investing alongside of me and they say, Eric, do what's best. That allows a little bit of a different management style, I would say, to the benefit, I think, of our culture.
0: No, really well said. And, and I can tell that that's what you're living and breathing over there, you know, And I want to ask you about your edge, but more to think about it, I think your edge is just the fact that you're transparent, you have integrity, you have honor, you obviously have the intelligence. You're thinking through investments and the business at scale.
1: We use a lot of technology. We work with RCL Co. on a lot of our data analytics for site selection and things like that. We use a lot of technology in the operation as well, whether it's, you know, bots for leasing or AI rents or purchase order processing. It's all technology driven and automated. I think our biggest advantage really is our advisory board and that's what gives us the edge. We have a phenomenal advisory board and they have all kind of one is a strategy guy, a Gotti Kaufman, He's the head of RCLCO or the chairman of RCLco. One is Steve LeBlanc who's a really a financial whiz. He was the head of Summit Residential and um, Texas teachers. Uh, the other is Rand- Randall L., who's the former COO of Steadfast and owned 38,000 units. And then Gerald Murfish, who's a long-term mentor and advisor of mine, very successful business person. So I think having that group, right? Because if you think about it, I'm, I don't have a partner. It's not, a lot of these businesses are family businesses or there's partnerships that are formed and, you know, there's kind of people to bounce ideas off of. Having the advisory board really allows us to work with Ah, uh, people who are experts in their field, and them to hold us accountable because we may think, oh, we're doing a great job. Like I have a property in Houston, eight hundred ten unit property bought for sixty thousand dollars a unit, and it's worth over one hundred twenty thousand units. Times eight hundred ten units, it's a lot of money. Yep. And you know, you can get a little complacent and say, I don't have to worry about it anymore. But they say, look, your economic occupancy is not where it needs to be. You should be pushing rents twelve percent. You're pushing them six percent. Like really holding us accountable to create operational excellence within our organization. I think that direction is probably our biggest advantage.
0: I know tons of sponsors, and I think it's rare for people to really have that level of advisory team around them. Kudos to you to think a big picture and scale. And I'm sure investors love to see that depth to the... Analysis and the team and the thoughtfulness. Um, you're fiduciary for a lot of capital. You've got young kids at home. You've got big goals and dreams that you're executing on. You've already executed on a tremendous degree. When you get up and frame your day in the morning, sort of what's the headspace you're in? You know, good day, bad day. What are the things you keep telling yourself every day as you drive forward?
1: You know, I'm a big believer that every day's progress, even from things that don't go your way. There's lessons to be learned that you can improve upon. I meditate, and I noticed on days that i don't meditate i'm much more irritable you know sometimes it's with my colleagues sometimes it's with my with my kids or my wife and so that's really important to me i also think that giving a communication channel to your direct reports is extraordinarily important so i have one-on-one meetings with all of my direct reports every week it's like a scheduled time they kind of run the meeting you know it's for them it's not for me a lot of the stuff that might get me irritated or might get them irritated with me can be flushed out because they know, okay, well, on Tuesday, I'm gonna get an hour with or 35 minutes with Eric. And you know, it doesn't build up like it should build up. We we do believe in candor here and holding each other accountable. I would say that's my best way to manage it. I also I work out almost every day. I played basketball last night. They had me play a game at 750 playoff game at 750 p.m, championship at 840 p.m. I said like, the championship's right after the playoff game? Oh my God. You're still, old, you're still young, though, Eric. You're still young. So, so anyway, so you all know, like I try to be fit, and and I think that just you know, being active helps a lot with uh, stress.
0: Is there anything else on your mind you'd want to share with any listener out there? Perhaps somebody who's getting started today. It's obviously a wacky market, uh, wacky time, hard to find deals. You know, what are you telling that person who's in your shoes twelve years ago? You know, is coming to you for advice, saying, "You know, Eric, we get coffee. I really want to be an owner and acquire real estate. I really want to build my own investment base."
1: Yeah. So, so what we do today is obviously a little bit different than when I started, and I feel very blessed that when I started, there was this opportunity to kind of get in to whatever small equity check deals that could make you a ton of money. I felt very fortunate. You know, as interest rates have changed and Treasuries have gone down, we've altered our strategy to focus on more. Well, located kind of assets with the belief that in an inflationary environment, that our demographic is going to have their incomes and their wages increase at a faster rate than kind of BNC people. I think what I would say is first and foremost, you'll form a strategy. Like, what do you believe at your core that is not just going to hold true today, but it's something you want to stick with for 30 years or 20 years? Like, that. figure out that, write it down, have your colleagues or your friends kind of you know, attack it and 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 say it's a bad idea. Beat it up, and then you know, go and find either examples of projects or partners or investors that you can kind of sell the strategy to. We we raise money on a project by project basis, so we already have the property before we're raising capital. Uh, it's not a fund model, which is kind of how people like the direct investing and the lower fees. But I think that I would still advise people to do that. For us, what we've learned is. You know in doing this for so long is that location is really, really important. And in a property, you have the potential to increase the value by what you can do to it, but there's more potential to increase value based on what goes around your property. So if your property is in a bad location or it's in the middle of nowhere and nothing's ever gonna come, it doesn't, you're not even giving yourself a chance. And so what I would say, you know, really is especially if you're young, you know, invest, get started because you just don't know where you're going to be. And if you're in it for the long-term, real estate does tend to work out pretty well. So even projects that were you know overpaid or weren't great deals, they've all worked out pretty pretty amazingly.
0: The whole conversation uh, we've had has been terrific. You've been really candid. I can tell that that's a real value in your culture and it's really come through here. What you've done is is fantastic. And I think your story is compelling. So- I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been terrific. And hopefully we'll be talking again real soon. Thank you for joining the DealMaker's Edge. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating so more people can follow the conversation.